Today's Gospel reading is from the 13th chapter of Matthew, verses 24 through 30, and verses 36 through 43. Jesus put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, No. For in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples approached him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers. And they will throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Let anyone with ears listen. The word of God for the people of God. Will you pray with me? May the words of, our, of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in the sight of God. Amen. Last week's gospel text in the Revised Common Lectionary, the parable of the sower, focused on the yield produced by the seed that fell on good soil. By contrast, the parable of the wheat and the weeds, traditionally referred to as the parable of the wheat and the tares, focuses on the judgment that will befall all causes of sin and all evildoers at the end of the age. What are we to make of this parable? We will be tempted to focus on judgment, this focus on judgment is inherently dangerous, for as Blaise Pascal said, there are only two kinds of people, the righteous who believe they are sinners and the sinners who believe they are righteous. If we have a healthy sense of our own imperfections, we may fear that we will be one of those who will be thrown into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We will recognize that like Jacob, whose name means schemer in Hebrew, we are imperfect and sinful. After all, 
we are only human. Or we, we may think we know who should be judged and found guilty. Due to our flawed humanity, this second kind of focus on judgment, a focus on judging others, is even more dangerous than the first. Judgment can be a terrible thing, for example, in the hands of those who wish to feel superior to others and to dominate them. New Testament scholar Walter Wink defines domination systems as societal patterns that impose oppressive or otherwise negative conditions against identifiable groups on the basis of age, race, gender, sexual identity, ethnicity, nationality, socioeconomic status, and the like. Domination systems in the United States include systemic racism, systemic ageism, systemic misogyny, systemic biases against LGBTQ persons, minority ethnic groups, and the poor. In domination systems, the few control the many to the advantage of the few. Wink asserts that all of these domination systems are undergirded by the myth of redemptive violence. The myth of redemptive violence enshrines the belief that violence saves, that war brings peace, that might makes right. It is one of the oldest continuously repeated stories in the world. If you want to see the myth of redemptive violence in action in American culture, just watch any Western or superhero movie. A hero opposes a villain, and the hero must use violence to vanquish the villain. Wrongdoers must be punished. Peace, order, and justice must be restored through violence. In every domination system, the few create privileges for themselves. They justify these privileges in the stories they tell about what's right, what's wrong, and what's fair. But because stories are never enough to keep people oppressed, the few create systems of retribution and punishment that can be used to defeat anyone who opposes or speaks out against the domination system. Because according to the rules of the domination system, the person who speaks out against the domination system is a wrongdoer who must be punished. The myth of redemptive violence was at work when the Romans crucified the Galilean troublemaker known as Yeshua, or Jesus. The myth of redemptive violence was at work when armed police attacked John L. Lewis and other peaceful unarmed civil rights protesters attempting to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge on the march to Selma in 1965. The myth of redemptive violence was at work when Officer Derek Chauvin took the life of George Floyd by kneeling on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, callously ignoring George Floyd's cries that he could not breathe. The myth of redemptive violence is at work even now as a major American city is being softly pinocheted in broad daylight by militarized federal law enforcement officers using unmarked vehicles to disappear protesters from the streets of Portland. 
These protesters are being detained in places that resemble the secret facilities used by authoritarian regimes to interrogate prisoners. See how dangerous judgment can be in our hands? But if we read this parable through the lens of nonviolent resistance to the forces of evil, the lens recommended to us by Jesus, I think we draw closer to what our focus should be in reading the parable. The focus should not be on judgment and punishment, but rather on accountability, growth, and healing. Perhaps then we will realize that we are not sinners in the hands of an angry God, but more like seedlings in the hands of a wise gardener. Like the other parables of growth found in the 13th chapter of Matthew, the parable of the wheat and the tares is not so much a parable of judgment as it is a parable about God's patience and forbearance, our ultimate accountability for our actions, and the healing and growth that God desires for all of us. When the master's servant asks the master if the master wants them to uproot the weeds, the master says, no, for in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat among them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. We know that God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Our perfections and imperfections grow side by side and are often tangled up with each other. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote in the Gulag Archipelago, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. What does God really want? Does God want to judge us, to punish us, and throw us into the furnace of fire? Today's Hebrew Bible reading can provide a further clue about God ultimately wants for each of us. Jacob has stolen the birthright and the blessing belonging to Esau as Isaac's firstborn. God finds Jacob on the run as he escapes from his brother Esau's wrath. Jacob arguably deserves to be punished for the wrong he has done to Esau. Does God punish Jacob? No. God gifts Jacob with an extraordinary dream that changes his life. Jacob's dream discloses the hidden yet active presence of God at this chance stop along the way. God's ongoing engagement in the world and in Jacob's disrupted life is portrayed through a striking vision of stairs reaching from earth to heaven. Rather than punishing Jacob, God promises Jacob that God will be with him and will keep him wherever he goes. Like Jacob, we are God's imperfect servants. God wants to find us, bless us, and heal us. Not because we deserve it, but because God is gracious. In his explanation of the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus says that God wants to remove all causes of sin from God's kingdom. God wants to remove all causes of sin from us. When we sin, we turn away from God and from our neighbors. How does God respond to this? With grace. 
John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, believed that grace is God's loving, personal presence at work in our lives. God works to heal us. And God doesn't do this by violently yanking sin out of us or by coercing us to be good. God's spirit is a spirit of gentleness. God wants us to cooperate in our own healing. God wants us to respond to God's grace by taking responsibility for our lives. God wants us to abandon the harmful behavior we unleash on ourselves, on those around us, and on the earth itself. How does God's healing grace come to us? John Wesley taught that God has ordained the means of grace to be the ordinary channels whereby God always conveys God, God's grace to us. The means of grace consist of works of piety and works of mercy. Works of piety include reading, meditating upon and studying the scriptures, taking them into our hearts, praying, fasting, abstaining from harmful food or substances, and trying to live healthy lives, sharing our faith with others, regularly attending worship and sharing in the sacraments, meeting with each other to talk about how our lives are going and how to hold each other accountable to the dynamic living words of God. Works of mercy include visiting the sick or those in prison, feeding the hungry and giving generously to the needs of others, seeking justice, ending oppression and discrimination, and addressing the needs of the poor. The means of grace can connect us to the love of God and to God's passion for justice and kindness. It's not so much that we find God's in the, God in the means of grace, but rather that God finds us through the means of grace. John Wesley also believed that God's grace could come to us anywhere. In the words of process theologian Bruce Epperly, the world is chock full of divinity. We can encounter the holy in the most unlikely of places. Wherever you happen to be right now, you can say, God is in this place. God is in the mixture of wheat and tares. God comes to us on the darkest night when we, like Jacob, recognize our brokenness. God cries out in wounded nature. Wherever we are, God is present. And wherever we are is Beit El, the house of God. God is everywhere, even though we don't always know it. And when we respond to God's loving presence, love, not judgment, will fill our hearts and reign without a rival. Then we can hope to one day shine like the sun in the kingdom of heaven. Please stand and join in us in the hymn 2120, Spirit, Spirit of Gentleness, found online. 